Our scripture reading for this morning comes to us from 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read the whole chapter, and our text and focus will be the last verse, verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us this spirit as, his, as a guarantee. And so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust also are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. As far the reading of God's holy word. And those last, the last verse, verse 21, is our focus. Dear congregation, the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper are symbols of Christ's atoning work on the cross, symbols to remind us of the high cost of our redemption. And Paul ends this chapter by saying, as we read in verse 21, the last half, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. To become the righteousness of God in Him. And to be righteous before God means to, to conform to His holy law, to be perfectly conformed to His moral law, His, his holy law, to be right with God, to be perfectly obedient to God in love. And yet we know that we have, have sinned against that law in every point, in, in every day. And if we spent any time this past week in self-examination, we can see how much we've broken that law. And yet Paul says that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And it is here at this table where the Lord also assures His people that He sees you and that He deals with you and that He communes with you as one who is perfectly righteous in His sight. And then we need to ask, has this then also made us hunger and thirst after that righteousness in which God can see you, in, in, God can look upon you with that love and grace, knowing that it is with only with that perfect righteousness that we can appear before God. As he said earlier in this chapter, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the only way we can do that is in this righteousness of Christ. And have you then had that hunger and thirst to know that righteousness, to be clothed with that righteousness, and to be seen in that righteousness? That's a little of what Paul speaks to us of here in this verse, in verse 21 again, it says four, and he shows us how this is possible to be found in that righteousness. Verse 21, he says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so our theme is simply these words, Christ made to be sin for us. Christ made to be sin for us. And in the first place we see Christ who knew no sin. Christ who knew no sin. To know sin really is to have a knowledge of and, and, and acquired through the experience of sinning. A knowledge gained by committing sin. Christ had no sin. You can think of Adam and Eve when they were created, they had no knowledge of what it was to, to disobey God. They had no knowledge of sin because they had never sinned. Adam and Eve knew no sin. 
And for those days, they, they, they lived in that communion and fellowship with God. They loved Him with their whole heart, with the whole mind, with their whole strength. And everything that they did was according to God's law. And so they were righteous in God's sight. They conformed to God's moral law. But when Adam and Eve, when Adam ate that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they knew what it was to sin. Then they knew what it was to break the law of God. Then they knew what it was to feel the guilt of sin and the fear of punishment, of the anger of God against their sin. They were no longer righteous, but now unrighteous. Now they were condemned before God. Because Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. And so by one sin, by one act of disobedience, they broke the law of God, the whole law, guilty of all, cursed, and under the death penalty. And so in their guilt they hid from God, and they hid from each other. All those relationships had been broken, and that love was broken, that communion was severed, and the trust was lost. But Christ had knew no sin. Christ had no knowledge of committing sin. He was born in that state of perfect innocence, just like Adam was before the fall. But we are all born and conceived in sin, David says in the Bible. And that means that we don't know anything different than sin. We don't know anything different than to be under that curse of the law and under the wrath of God. But now think of what Christ accomplished for His people. Because Christ was exposed to to all these temptations to sin. When Adam and Eve were in paradise, they, they had no temptation until Satan came with that one temptation. They had no concept of sin. They had no inclination to sin, no environment of sin. But they fell under one temptation. But Christ was born into a fallen world. And Hebrews 4 says He was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. And this is why He's also said to be our sympathizing high priest who can who can sympathize with us, knowing what we face, being tempted in all points in our life. But Christ knew no sin. Never once in His whole life did He succumb to any of these temptations. But we have to confess that we fall under temptation every day. We're tempted by our own desires. And how often do we sin and enter, enter temptation without even realizing it? We're so immersed in sin, so entirely corrupt in ourselves, that sin so often appears normal. Because how often do we covet without thinking that we're actually breaking the Tenth Commandment? How often do we fill our minds with thoughts of which Jesus says are murder or adultery? Do we love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, and all our strength every moment of every day 
of our life? And do we love God above everything in this life, above our own spouses, above our own families, above our own vacations, work, or our own rights? It's not hard to see how far short we fall of being perfectly righteous. But even when we realize we're being tempted and we fight against it, we, we quickly find the limits, our limits, don't we? And, and we, we, even if we succeed for a while, there comes a point in time when we le- reach that limit and we fall. Whether it's a sudden outburst of, or burst of wrath or, or, or anger or impatience or covetous, but Christ was tempted in every point as we are and yet without sin. The temptations were stacked up against Christ day after day, His whole life long. And He was faced with that slander and with that rejection. He was despised by His own siblings. He was rejected by the people. He was falsely accused by the leaders. He was condemned by Pilate, but Christ did not sin. He was tempted by the devil with riches, with power, with, with pride, but He never sinned. Because Christ had no inclination to sin. You see the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane who could not watch for one hour, but they fell asleep. They couldn't pray with Him when He was in agony, but He persevered. Christ was without sin, perfectly righteous, perfectly conformed to the law of God from the day of His birth to the day of His death. He knew no sin. But then secondly, we consider God made him to be sin for us. God made him to be sin for us. Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who knew no sin, of which John says who was in the bosom of the Father from eternity, that place of communion with the holy God, the God who cannot look upon iniquity, who says he is of purer eyes and to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. They so holy that even the seraphims cover their faces and cover their feet because they're creatures in the presence of the almighty and eternal God. This Christ who was born without sin, who, who had the spirit without measure, who, who had that holy repulsion to sin, that holy hatred against sin, that holy purity who was uh, separate from sin, this Christ was made to be sin for us, it says. If you just think about David in Psalm 51, how he complains of the stain and of the guilt of sin, and he says in verse 3, my sin is always before me aware that he had sinned in the presence of a holy God. And he cries out, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Because this sin makes us feel sick, sick to the stomach. The believer, like David, learns to confess that, that you have sinned against a holy and a good doing God and against his law, against all what is good and right. He says, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Sin then is such a burden to the soul and it weighs you down. It's something you can't get rid of yourself. Even unbelievers learn to hate it and the effects of it. You think of David's son, Amnon, 
who committed such a horrific crime when he raped his half-sister, Tamar. And after that sin, he despised her. He loathed her. His sin made him despise the victim of his own sin. It made him hate others. It causes us to hate God, and it causes us to hate ourselves. That's how horrific our sin is. But here also is a difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Because believers learn to recognize that we have sinned against God and against His holy law. And it's sin itself that is vile in the sight, and not only the effects of it. And this week you might have been a downcast or a burdened or dejected when you realized how sinful we really are, of how much we see in our own life, and of how little progress it seems that you can make from week to week. And maybe you thought even, how can I even go to the Lord's table like this? But more than that, we're so immersed in this sin that we do not even notice how much sin we do commit or how loathsome it really is to a holy God or to others. If you think even of our own country, there was a time when you could get punished for or a fine for swearing in public. And it's still in our criminal code that you can get punished for swearing or using obscene language. But look at our culture, how the blasphemy and obscene language is used in public advertisements and media. We're immersed in it. Never mind the public obscenity and immorality that is now being published in our schools and, and being paraded on our streets. It can be obnoxious for Christians just to, to work in such environments. But then think of Christ. He was born into the sin-cursed world. He was surrounded by this filth and this stench of sin. He walked in the middle of people who committed sin against each other, who suffered the consequences of sin with the, with the sickness and disease and famines and wars and death. But he also was the object of their sin. When he was slandered, when he was spit on, when he was mocked and ridiculed and, and beaten and falsely accused. But imagine how he saw the enmity of sin rise up against God and against all that is good. When he saw their spiritual blindness and deadness of soul. Is it any wonder that Jesus wept when Lazarus died? It's because the consequences of sin, the filth of sin, the result of sin against the holy God and how he created them. Is it any wonder that he had such compassion on these multitudes who wandered around like sheep without a shepherd, blind to their own destruction and destiny, alienated from their father, God? But how that must have pained him to see that enmity, that sin, that misery in this world. But even more than that, he was made to be sin. What does that mean, to be made to be sin? Well, it does not mean that Christ started sinning because he knew no sin. It does not mean that Christ became sinful because Hebrews says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But what it means is that Jesus was legally declared to be guilty because of our sin. 
He was blamed for all this filth of sin. He was condemned in the court of God's law while he was innocent. His innocence attested to by Pilate. And we just finished going through the, state, the states of Christ, the state of humiliation and exaltation. And that state of humiliation means guilty, legally condemned. His status in this world was one of a condemned criminal living under the death penalty. And why? That brings us to our third point. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isaiah 53 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That means Christ took our place, that he was condemned on our behalf as our substitute, because we all begin in this state of condemnation. We are all born in the state of condemnation, born guilty, our hands stained with sin, not only original sin, but our own actual sin. And how we live in this mire and filth, this landfill of sin. But now it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, to become the righteousness of God. In a similar way, it doesn't mean that we no longer sin when we are saved. It does not mean that believers are now perfectly righteous when they believe. But it means to be legally declared to be right, righteous and right with God. When you, by a true faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are legally declared to conform to His whole law of God because of the work of Christ. That's the declaration of the gospel. And Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse 19 of our chapter says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, not crediting their trespasses to them. And here we see that great exchange, as it's often called, Christ legally declared guilty, even though... He was innocent, while those who believe in Him by true faith are legally declared to be righteous, even though we still sin. What that means is when God declared Christ guilty, legally condemned, He then carried that curse and that death penalty for His people. It was credited to His account. And when the sinner, when God declares a sinner righteous, you then carry the blessings, the righteousness of God. You're treated as one who's perfectly righteous. You're then adopted into the family of God and the children of God and heirs with Christ. That's Christ's righteousness credited to your account to be seen in God's sight as perfectly holy and righteous. And how is that possible that we as sinners can be acquitted legally declared righteous with God, that a God is so holy 
that cannot look upon iniquity. When it says he cannot pass by transgression, but must punish it fully. And then we see how Christ suffered in that state of humiliation from when he was born, and he suffered his whole life long, but especially there on the cross. Because there already in Gethsemane, Christ, he prayed, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, if it be possible. Because the wrath of God was in that cup, and he saw that that punishment coming. He saw that wrath of God coming against him. But Christ was made to be sin so that he could bear that wrath of God against our sin. He did not just bear our sin, but he, he was identified with it. He was made to be sin. He was condemned on account of our sin. And God saw Christ then as guilty of all the sins of his people. And the spot of our sin was put on him. So that the just and eternal wrath of God that was in that cup came against him. And he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane only when he saw that cup coming towards him. But because there was no other way out to satisfy God's just wrath against sin except by drinking it, God must punish that sin because sin cannot be left unpunished or else our guilt cannot be removed from us. And then when he was hung on that cross, that cup of God's wrath was poured out completely to the last drop. When the darkness covered the earth and he had to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ, who knew no sin, was made to be sin. So that the Son of God, who knew only that perfect communion and that peace with God, had to experience and taste the bitter wrath and separation from God. But that is where Christ paid for the sins of his people in full. There, Christ was made to be sin so that he could take that wrath of God in the place of his people because that is what we justly deserve. That is what we deserve to be eternally punished, eternally separated from God in hell forever, where nothing except His full and fierce wrath against your sin would burn forever and ever. And we deserve to be driven from Him like Adam was driven from paradise. But now it says in verse 21, for He made Him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ took that curse, because cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He bore that punishment. Isaiah says He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. He was crushed for our iniquities. That chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes, we are healed so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it is through this that God can legally declare you righteous in His holy sight because there that sin has been removed and paid for and taken away. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. 
Therefore, Paul says in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To help us consider this, Lord's Day 21 and question 56. You may want to read it later at home. Lord's Day 21, question 56 asks, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the answer is that God for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sin, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. And so it is. When we break this bread and we take of that bread, we remember that Christ's body was broken on the cross for us. And now when that cup of the wine comes around and we drink, we remember that Christ's blood was shed for our sin. That he was condemned by God, made to be sin for us to take that punishment in our place so that you can now sit even here in the presence of God, seen as righteous in His sight. That's no small thing. That's not to be taken lightly. That's not just something to do and to walk away like nothing happened but to sit in the presence of a holy God, knowing that Christ took your place and that you can now sit where He sits, in the presence of God. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you need that filling of His righteousness? We do not come to this table to declare that we are righteous. But that by grace through faith, God declares us righteous only for the sake of Jesus Christ, who endured that cross. And all those then who have learned to trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope, as your only righteousness, as your only way of salvation by a true faith, God will certainly receive you at his table. Amen.